Sport requires effort, sweat and strong will, and Macron knows it. A leading global company with Italian DNA in the production and sale of sportswear, when Macron first entered the sports world in 1971, it was a small yet strong player. Since then, Macron has been growing at a very fast pace, supporting teams, sportsmen and women at all levels, working hard to supply them with the best technical products to help improve their performances. With over 4 million pieces of stock available in our Italian warehouse and an extensive range of on-field, off-field and free-time products, we cater for everyone from amateurs to professional sporting organisations, even referees. Ranked third most prominent football brand by the UEFA, Macron keeps expanding its presence worldwide, including Australia, where we are currently proud partners of Perth Glory, MacArthur FC, Port Adelaide and Parramatta Eels, and more to come. Work hard, play harder, Macron, your next teamwear partner. For more information, visit our website at www.macronvic.com.au or call us on 1-800-MACRON. Welcome back Welcome. to the Football Outwear Show. It's um, it's um, episode 86. Um, just a reminder, next week we will not be um, on air. It is Easter Sunday, so we are having a bit of a break, a bit of a breather. But um, in the meantime, folks, it's our pleasure to uh, bring on the show Gary Cole. Um, Gary, how are you? And it's a, it's an absolute pleasure to have you with us tonight. Thanks, Anch. Craig, uh, Steve, it's great, great to be with you. A few ten. Few technical issues here. <laughs> the was um, I thought you guys were speaking a language that you devised for out west because I couldn't understand a word of it. <laughs> uh, it's okay. I've uh, joined them on the phone and it seems to be working okay right now. Well, oh, it is a different good, dialect out here, I must say, uh, Gary. It's uh, slightly different to everywhere else across <laughs> Melbourne. So um, bear with us. We'll try and do our best to to be heard and understood. <laughs> Can you guys hear me okay? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, all good. All good. Yeah, can, yeah, yeah. can we actually kick off by talking about your your Ted Lasso t shirt? That is an absolute beauty. Where did you get that? Uh, this is a good good friend from a, 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 a non soccer person that lives out west. My mate Drew Hildebrand, who I work with, um, who I think I put him onto Ted Lasso as the best coach in the world. And um, True True and his family adopted him and then found these t shirts. So uh, I've now got it. This is the second time I've worn it. It um, it, it made its debut on um, the Football Coaching Life podcast last week. So um, got to honour Ted. I think he's a wonderful human being and we all need more coaches like Ted. Be like agreed. Ted. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> <laughs> love it, love it. Um, Craig? Yeah, listen, thanks thanks for uh, spe- uh, giving up your time, Gary. It's uh, really appreciative and uh, it's always good to get you on to talk uh, talk football. Um, let's, uh, let, let's... Sorry, mate, you can say something? Thank you very much, sir. Yeah, very much. As uh, yeah, seem to be getting uh, getting very old now. Although I did uh, have a shave today, and uh, I put the wrong settings on the shaver, so it all had to come off. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so. Um, listen, mate. We just want to start. Uh, congratulations on your um, inductee into the uh, Football Victoria Hall of Fame. Um, how did uh, how did that come about? And uh, and and what's uh, how did it come about first and foremost? And um, um, what about the other guys that's that's on there with you? Because I think there was five inducted. Is that right? I think there were three inducted into the Hall of Fame, and then five people, including two of the three in the Hall of Fame, were inducted as life members. Life members so, right. yeah. 
Um, uh, I had a call late last year um, in December, I think, uh, to say that I, I'd been inducted and um, that they would sort of get back and uh, wanted to, because in the past I've, I've got a feeling that the induction into the Hall of Fame was done at a function. <laughs> we now live in the time of COVID, so functions were a no-no back then. <laughs> and they decided to do um, a digital version to honour um, the other people, um, Frank Mitchich and um, the other lady that was inducted. And that, his, his name escapes me right now, but they collected my, uh, thank God for my, my dear old mum that had, um, a box full of, of memorabilia there and scrapbooks. So they, they captured all that, had us out at Heidelberg for an afternoon with Jimmy Rooney, Kenny Taylor, Jimmy Campbell, and, and we had a bit of a meander down memory lane. So it was, it was great. From my perspective, it's, it's obviously a wonderful honour to be inducted, but um, I think Tony Pasoglia is the only person employed, albeit part-time at the moment, but around Australia as a historian. So he's capturing so many of the wonderful stories of Australian football and, um, you know, he's digitising those as we go along. So mm-hmm. really, really that's, that's how it happened. I have to admit, when I first got the phone call, I said, guys, look, I, I'm really honoured, but I, I, I think I'm already in there. And, um, <laughs> and Nick, Nick, uh, Nick <laughs> said, well, no, no, guys, you can't be. And I said, yeah, I, th- I think back in around 2000. <laughs> But that was I got inducted into the Soccer Australia Hall of Fame back then, so yeah. um, my memory failed me, and uh, we corrected all that. So yeah, look, uh, honoured. It's been a, it's been a wonderful football journey, and um, uh, thankfully it's still going. Right, let's talk about the history. Let's talk about when you first came to the country. We've had you on the on the program before, no, um, but let's nonetheless let's like, let's do the right thing and talk about the early days. And we've got some footage there, or we've got some photos there from your first few days when you first came to Australia from England. Um, I'm sure we've asked this question before, but did you ever expect that you were going to last this long in the land down under? No, and, and I, I nearly never. Um, to be honest, Tonch, my, my first my first six months was great. We arrived in summer. I went to El, Elwood High School, made, made a couple of mates. We used to um, dodge classes, jump the fence, go down to the beach. But um, I, I just miss London so much. Um, you know, I was a... I was Jack the Lad in London with my other 16-year-old mates and um, enjoying life, enjoying football, looking forward to getting my Lambretta licence and and, and being a general hoodlum around the place, so coming to Australia wasn't on the um, on the list of things to do. And I pondered, I, I, I honestly pondered trying to stow away to get to get home. And I found out the night my mum passed away because my dad and I sat and drank a bottle of scotch. Um, they actually bought a ticket for me to go back, um, but it was football that I, I guess kept me here. Dad, dad and mm-hmm. I went to South Yarra and. Um, the beginning of my football journey um, spiked my interest in Australia and um, and helped me <laughs> gradually turn around so that I, I miss London less and less and came to love this beautiful country. Uh, and Gary, you had a fantastic career, particularly when you were at uh, Heidelberg, Alexander, as it was then, Heidelberg United. Now, you must have some fond memories from the camaraderie in the dressing room, on the pitch and the training ground with the guys there. Um be good to touch on that, but also a little bit on uh, do you keep in touch with the fortunes of the club at the moment in the current season and having a very up-and-down season, fair to say? 
Yeah, yeah, they are. They're um, they're having probably their worst start for a for a long while right now. And yeah, look, I, I stay in touch. I don't go down every week and watch, but I stay in touch with them. George sent him a message now and again, and, and Steve Salakidis has done a remarkable job um, keeping the place together and afloat over the years. And and obviously they they've done a wonderful job working with local government and state government mm. for funding to to help redefine the place. But yeah, of course, you know, when I joined the club, it was Fitzroy United Alexander. It was 1976, the year before the National Soccer League kicked off. Um, and I joined uh, Vince, and Panny, uh, Vince and Paddy Bannon. Brothers played, George Gillam played. Um, and, and it was, uh, and we played at the Brunswick Street, uh, Brunswick Street Oval. Um, wow. Wasn't until the second season um, that we changed to Heidelberg because they managed to secure um, the what is now known as the Olympic Village. And mm-hmm. yeah, look, it, it it was great, Steve, because they were wonderful men. It was part time, you know. We trained Tuesday, Thursday, Friday nights. Um, we travelled. We thought I told the Melbourne Victory players this on the first day of training. When, yeah. When we kicked off in 77, we actually thought full-time professional football was just around the corner. And it was. It was 36, 38 years. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I got, I got to play with, you know, at one stage, I think there were eight or nine Socceroos in that squad. So yeah. when you go through them, Yakubanovich, there was Jeff Olver, John Eisendorn, um, Jimmy Tanzi, Theo Salamides, Andy Bazikas, um, Jamie Payton. Jimmy Campbell, um, you know, that, that's a remarkable group of people. We didn't play together all the time, but, but over, you know, my journey through the Socceroos as well and the Victorian team, I got to play with those blokes. So as most of us didn't have family here, I was lucky I had my immediate mm. family. Most of them had come out by themselves or with a, with a, a partner. Um, you know, they were, they were family and, and in the main they still are. Gary, you talked. You mentioned how um, when when you first, when the Phillips National Soccer League, as it was known then in 1977, took off. Um, you know there was great expectations. A, a lot of people thought that there was going to be you know full time professionalism just around the corner. But playing in the um, Victorian State League as it was then, and then moving to the National League, did the standard just jump in leaps and bounds? You know, from your from your experience, or was it something similar to what you'd experienced in the um, state league in the Victorian state league competition up until nineteen seventy seven? Yeah, look, I think that the the level was just more consistent, more often. You know, you you'd essentially taken at the time the best and strongest clubs from around the country, and you put them in, into a league together at the same time. So. You know, we went in with with South Melbourne Hellas. We went in with Footscray JUST, and um, Brunswick Juventus joined a couple of years in. I'm no good with the chronology of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Western suburbs in Sydney, Marconi, Arpia, um, Sydney, Rural Bark, first yeah. year. And look, I, I don't know if you know that story, but but Ted Bailey, who was the the chairman of Rural Bark, the he, he was the one that definitely said yes, we're going because. VSF had threatened all of the clubs if they'd left to go uh, into the National League and it definitely de- didn't work, they wouldn't be allowed back into Victorian football. Mm. So, the, wow. the, you know, the, the clubs got a bit, a bit 
Titchy. They weren't quite sure because no one knew what the future would hold. And But Tom Bailey, bold as brass, said, I don't care. We're, we're in it. We're going. Um, and unfortunately, they only lasted the season. But without Moorabark and, and what they did, you yeah. know, maybe Fitzroy and South Melbourne and Footscray JUSC wouldn't have jumped in at the time. But but the general standard was was high. Obviously, with the National League, you know, the the better players at some of the other Victorian or the State League clubs got, got signed and moved across to not just the Victorian clubs but around the country. So I think overall the standard was higher more often. Yeah. Um, but by the same by the same token, you know, I, I I got into the Ringwood City Wilhelmina first team when I was seventeen, uh, because Peter Ollerton transferred up to Sydney. Um, and and the good teams were good teams, you know. The, no, there's no shirking that they were strong, they were tough. The game was very very physical. The pitches were, um, let's just put it, not quite as nice as they are today. <laughs> <laughs> so you got a competition week in week out, but no no doubt, um, Tonch, it definitely it definitely moved up to a to yeah. a new and more consistent level. I'm thinking out loud now, I'm just wondering, um, with all the talk of the National Second Division possibly kicking off next year, and um, you know we've, we've just had Caroline Springs, George Cross, one of those clubs that was, was involved in the old NSL, a club that will definitely be looking at, along with clubs like Preston, Melbourne Knights, South Melbourne, Heidelberg, your club, um, of entering that, that National Second Division. Uh, in your opinion, do you think the standard of, of football in that second tier um, will will increase with this uh, na- proposed national second division? Well, a- a- again, you would think it would because it's 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 exactly the same as setting up the first time around. I mean, this is the second time around, but the the better young players and the the, the better players that can't get an A League contract, or the players coming back from overseas that can't get an A League contract, mm-hmm. or the the older, more experienced players that can't get another contract are, are going to have this other opportunity, as are the coaches, of course, and, and there's going to be opportunities for, for um, referees as well. So I think, I think it certainly should. The challenge is going to be what does it look like? You know, is it going to be a, a, a 28, 32-round competition? Is it going to be, a, you know, um, I've heard it discussed as like a keep it the same, the NPL will have this playoff at the end of the season and things like that. But if it's going to be a, a regular competition, there's a move to say the player should be full-time and, and that raises challenges around, you know, funding and clubs paying for that. But everyone thinks that's doable. So if... If that can happen and the players are going to be training day in, day out, um, l- let's assume that we get, you know, um, good quality coaching in there as well, mm-hmm. then I think it, it definitely should. Um, can I just say, though, I, I don't necessarily believe that in and of itself it can be the panacea. You know, if, if depending on how all this is structured, if the, if the young players playing in it, are only playing 16, 20 games a season, then then in and of itself, I don't think that solves the dilemma. If the players are getting 30, 40, 50 games a season because we've got this other development process to assist them in there, then they're going to get better. Now, Tonchi's just asked me if I want to ask you anything, and that was exactly the question I was going to ask. So is, <laughs> is, obviously, is obviously having a set division really... Um, detrimental um, if they're only playing 22, 
games a season, Gary. And, you know, we, we talk, and we'll touch on it in uh, in the other part of the show, but we've talked about it over the years about how how the development of young footballers and how we get the young footballers playing at the highest level we can here in Australia. 22 games is not enough in NPL. It's not enough in state league football. Um, it's certainly not enough in NPL. So is that a big criteria that needs to be addressed before um, it goes ahead? No, because I, I, I think I'm a, I'm a great believer, Craig, progress is more important than perfection. So perfection to me says, you know, there's there's at least 32 games. Um, what is it? If you've got 16 teams, that's 30, you know, that's a minute of 30 games. So I, I think that, that would be a wonderful place to start, but maybe the beginning of it isn't that. And, and we build on it. What I can't say, because I'm not privy to it, I, I, I know that Steve Salakidis has invested, God only knows how, how much of his time, his effort and his money into Heidelberg. And he thinks it's doable and he thinks it's sustainable. So I'm not the right person to argue <laughs> against it. But I, just, I don't believe that 20 games solves it because those 20 games are, are, are going to be at a standard that's a, a, a bit further up. For me, we've got to do something more for young players. Now, whether, whether and again, we don't know, you know, the season's going to overlap with, there's been uh, talk of overlapping the, the um, MPL2 with a, you would think it would need to run in conjunction with the A-League if, if at some stage there will be promotion and relegation. But um, there's so many unknowns for us to, to determine. But if, yep. if you Come back to, you know, I think we're all old enough and wise enough to know that in and of itself, a small number of games just doesn't help players develop quickly enough. Yeah. Now, Gary, you spent some of your earlier parts of your coaching career full-time up in Canberra at AIS. Let's talk a little bit about player development from that perspective. What can we learn from the times when we did have that program in place compared to, to now and what we should be looking to do in that space for that player development of those players at the very top of the elite pathways that are flourishing as they approach senior football age? Yeah, Steve, well, that, that's a wonderful question. And again, it's like everything in Australian football. The answer is <laughs> not, not that simple. Yeah. I, I went, I drove, uh, my wife and I drove up to Sydney for the Soccerers Japan game. We then went to the Football Riders Festival in Kiama for the weekend, which was extraordinary. And then driving back, we stopped in at Canberra and, and we spent the night with uh, Ron and Alison Smith, who was the head coach at the AS when I was there, and went out for dinner. And, and we, we've had plenty of discussion, you know, around this. Because I was going to catch up with Ronnie, uh, Ronnie I went to the, the, um, the um, website that's run by... Um, Sport Australia, which his name escapes me right now, and I looked to every squad of the, in the men's program. Sorry, so this is men specific at the moment. I looked yeah. to every player in the squad that went through there. Oscar Crino was in the, um, the, the 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 first squad that went through. It is if you haven't done it, you should go. And I'm happy to see yeah. the link as a finishing school for Australia's best young talent, it was without doubt the best thing we'd ever done because it worked in conjunction with the mm. state institutes, which were essentially the under-17 programs. So the, the, the state institutes were about developing players for the, for the Joeys and the AIS was about developing players for the, for the under-20 program and there was a bit of crossover in there. So for me, the, the best training with the best, they played together together um, 
you, you know, at different times they played. Well, one the first season I was there, we played in the I can't even remember what it was called then, Victorian Premier League maybe. We weren't allowed to play for points, and we won it by nine. We weren't allowed to to keep the points. Um, but that was a fantastic season we drove down. Then the following year in the, the New South Wales um, uh, um, National Youth League, I think, and it was different again. So challenging across the time. For me, I love the concept of the best training and playing against the best and with the best. So for me, that I don't know how much it costs, and I, un, I think I understand why we took it away. So in looking to save some money... Uh, as football administrators tend to do, and the technical staff at the time of Football Australia saying, we need, we can't afford just to have the AIS and these state institutes. We aren't getting enough players with access to good quality coaching. And so we, we said, all right, every, every A-League team, A-League men's team needs an academy. Um, and, and we hand-passed the responsibility of the development of players to the A-League clubs. Um, and, you know, part of me says there's some really, really good things in that and the clubs that are well-resourced and have done a great job in there have produced some wonderful young talent. Um, there's some other clubs where, you know, maybe the investment hasn't been as great and so maybe the, the players coming through, there's not been as many of them. But... I still think there's a place for the best training and playing with the best and you can get a season of playing plus ongoing regular competitions. You know, back then as well, we had, mm. we had state and national championships. There were here in Victoria, we had regional teams. So, so kids were getting a lot more football um, and I think they were getting some good quality coaching as well. Okay, we're speaking with uh, Gary Cole, who's one of six... Uh, inductees in this year's Football Victoria Hall of Fame. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we're going to continue talking with Gary um, about life after football and uh, what he's been up to recently. Don't go away, folks. You find authentic Maltese cuisine? At Georgie's on Vista, in the heart of Fraser Eyes. We have a menu to suit everyone, which includes kids' and seniors' meals, and a cocktail list that will need you to come back several times to get through. Our specialty nights are a big hit. Tuesday is $20 Palmer night with a selection of Palmers to choose from. Kids eat free Wednesday night. With every paid adult meal, you get one free kids meal. Thursday is Maltese night. Check out the Maltese specials on our specials board. And Friday night, we have happy hour between 5.30 to 6.30 p.m. Be sure to book your table to avoid disappointment. Bookings can be made via our website, georgiesonvista.com.au. See you at George's on Vista. You'll find us at Caroline Springs George Cross. Welcome back to the uh, Football Out West show in this episode um, 86. And we're continuing our conversation with um, Gary Cole, inductee of the Australian of Football Victoria Hall of Fame. Um, Craig, have you got a question for uh, Gary? Yeah, um, I just really want to touch on what, what he's been talking about there, about um, the, the history, the AIS. Um, and I suppose it would be remiss of us not to ask the question while, while we're talking about it. That, but the Socceroos currently, um, obviously gone through a, a bit of a torrid time in the, uh, in the uh, qualifying. Um, 
period, obviously still a, a, an outside chance of, of, of qualifying, of course. Yeah. Um, but how how much of an impact is 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 not qualifying for the World Cup going to have on on football, Gab? As a as an ex soccer yourself, and you know, not qualifying for for a major tournament is is hugely damaging. Um, you know, and everybody talks. You know, I've been here ten years now, and everybody's still talking yep. about the the, the two thousand and six squad. Well, we're now almost twenty years later, and we're we're, we're the country's still in a in a very vulnerable position in terms of the national side. What needs to change on that? Uh, on that, and I know you obviously you're close to Arnie, so I, I don't expect you to. Uh, but what what needs to change, mate? Because obviously there's a there's been a lot uh, lot being said on it over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, big big question that, Craig. Mm-hmm. Um, so so where you go? Let, let's start where it, it currently is. I think if if no, no matter how much green and gold you bleed, the the performance against Japan in um, in Sydney recently and the loss to Japan in Sydney um, shows that there's a gap. Uh, and for me, one of the early things I've had this conversation with a few former Socceroos, um, Peter Rollett included, who played in that 74 World Cup squad uh, during the week. Early on in the game, there was a ball down their left knocked over um, our, our right back's uh, head. And, and he and the Japanese winger chased it. And they're shoulder to shoulder running along. And the Australian bloke essentially gives him a, a, a hip and shoulder. And he ended up on the ground. That was, that was Ryan Grant. And the Japanese bloke went forward and they're now attacking again. And I looked at it and I went, you know what? That sort of sums up a bit about where we're at. Because back when the 74 team played in Asia, back when my generation played, before the golden generation got to be um, really, really good footballers. But the one thing that all Australian players had was the physicality helped us stand out in Asia and Oceania. We were quite not not necessarily always quicker, but stronger, more powerful, and we could we could use that to our advantage as well as play good football because we had not even that guy. They were the guys that went to Europe, the guys that yeah, were played in the, in the in the old first division at the time. Yevadukas, strong physical football players. That and that's how they got a gig in those competitions, Craig. Yeah. So you know what what's happened in the last. I don't, I'm not quite sure. Let, let's call it 20 years. The development. The, the, the investment, and I, and I don't know this, I can't prove this because I can't pull the numbers out, but this is the way it looks to me, that the investment in the development in football in Australia appears to be well short of the best teams in Asia. Now, you know, Japan's been working on their plan for about 30 years now. Um, they've got 30 team professional teams now. I think they started with 10, they've now got 30. Um, their players are... Firstly and foremost, technically very, very, very good footballers. Mm. Their touch, their vision, their passing is is sensational, and so is the, in Korea, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But now they match us physically. They're they're they're, they're all like bloody lightning, and and they're strong as oxes. So, you know that, that has sort of gone away. Now, I don't know whether you have to get that back anymore because the game's certainly changing. But to me, you do. If you want to play at the top level, whether that's for club football or international football, you've got to be prepared, obviously, physically, technically uh, and mentally as well to be able to go and compete. And and please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the guys didn't compete. 
what I'm saying is we are that that physical side of what we offer isn't what it was mm -hmm. and the overall development to me right now I'm going to say isn't quite where I, I think it should be what do you put that down to Gary why are we not why is it not physical now why are we not concentrating on that side of the game is it because the curriculum isn't all about you know no, I'm not going to blame the curriculum because I, I, I honestly don't know. And, and at the end of the day, the, the you know, isn't the curriculum a reference document? Absolutely. It's not mm. a Bible, is it? You know, you're out there coaching kids week in, week out. Um, so you, you can probably tell me a better story than that because I, I'm, sit down, I'm sitting here watching it. Um, and certainly the best football in the world is physical. You know, if, whether you're watching the uh, Condobol qualifiers on the TV or the mm. Euro. It's not quite as physical as it used to be, and the ground's a lot better. The players are te all technically better, but they're fit, they're quick, and they're unbelievably strong. And if they're not, they're, they're just not playing at that level. So I, I don't know exactly what, what happened. I wish I had this magic ball and mm. I could say, this is it, fix this bit, and it changes. Um, mm. But I would still like to see, I think if we want to invest in something, I get that we, we want all the A-League clubs to have academies. The plan is for all the NPL clubs to have academies as well. And we've got this wonderful collection of coaches around the country that are developing players. So I think we've had this conversation before. How, how do players get better? More game um, time. More, more mm. time on the training field. <laughs> they do, yeah. So, yeah. so more training time, more playing time. Um, more, more learning in the game because that's an important part of it, but good quality coaching as well. Um, and I, ca I can't answer that right now. All I know is this, that as a country, we've put through thousands of coaches through mm. coach licences and we call that coach education. And that's a bit like calling um, kids, 18-year-olds getting driver's licence driver education. You know, it isn't. A licence is a licence. It gives you access to the roads. It doesn't make you a great driver. So I think we've got to invest in our coaches, particularly the young ones, and maybe we need to encourage some of the older ones back, back in to help, some of the, to, to help with, the, with the younger players as well. But for me, it's a twofold thing. I don't see how you get better players without having better coaches. Mm-hmm. Mm. All right, Gary. Well, it's the biggest time we've ever had in the history of our nation's footballing past for women's football coming up over the next 12 months. Let's talk a little bit about that. We had, uh, we actually had young Stephanie Gretsch, the captain of uh, Georgie's uh, side, uh, with a great interview before, great culture there at their club. And I think they're doing yep. all the right things, getting the youngsters involved with to aspire up to play in the senior team and all that sort of stuff that, you know, has been identified in the reports about what made our golden generation great, that sort of thing. But uh, our current materials, we've got a great squad of players. We've got some great talent in there, but the the sum of the parts don't really seem to form a, a, a great team right at the moment, at least uh, it appears that way. We, we've crashed out of the Asian Cup. We've got this big tournament, the World Cup, on our own shores. Can you see it? Uh, can you see things going okay for us, or are we going to be disappointed? Do you think next year? Ah, oh, goodness me! Honestly, <laughs> again, it, it's just so hard to call. Some tough questions yeah. tonight. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful group of women that are playing now. They are the golden generation. You know, they're playing yeah. in. The yeah, for sure. 
in in Europe and, and not just you know a handful of them there's good numbers playing there again um, individually there's no doubt they stand up collectively mm. um, to me they still look like they're a work in progress you know I, I, I don't know Tony and, and I don't want any coaches to get the sack hey I'm on the executive committee of football. <laughs> we want we want, <laughs> we want coaching contracts to be honored and yeah. on that you know, uh, when you sign a national team coaching job, you've got you've got a job for a four year cycle, and your goal is pretty simple: get this team to the World Cup, and once you're there, um, you know, go ahead and win it. Now, the expectation for us is that even if Arnie qualifies for the World Cup, that'll do us because we know we don't have a hope in hell of winning it. For mm. Tony Gustafsson, <laughs> he's already qualified. The job's easier. We're hosting it. He's already qualified. But yeah. because of where the players are, the expectation in Australia is we should win it. And, of course, we were very bold as brass. We said we were going to win the Asian Cup and we got knocked out in the quarterfinals. Every, there's this big question mark coming around in the background and, and that's a difficult place to work. But, you know, at the professional level, you get paid the big bucks and, and the big problems go along with that. So I'm, I'm, what, what I'm not going to do, Steve, is profess to be an expert um, yeah. on men's football because I'm not connected to it often enough. I know people are working really, really hard. I know and believe we've got some wonderful players. Um, are they going to come together at the right time? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm praying like everyone else. Yeah, I think <laughs> we all are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Gary, you mentioned you mentioned how your your involvement with coaches and um, and coaches um football coaches Australia. One of the things that you've been doing, and um, you're you're basically a, a colleague of ours, and that is um the um uh, the podcast there. Um, so that's that's it. Um, coaching life, the football coaching life podcast. Tell us a bit more about that. And um, and has that got you a little bit itchy to take up coaching, listening to all these coaches week in, week out, providing all these? Uh, are you sort of saying to yourself, oh, "I could do that. I could do better." <laughs> Don't you? One, one of the one of the very strategic questions I ask all of them is why they do it. Yeah, uh, and we <laughs> things. So, look, I I, uh, I have to say I've done a lot of things in football all the time and this is up where up there with the most enjoyable mm. it, it was born out of uh, COVID because you know coaches particularly here in Victoria weren't coaching and and uh, people like Ian Greener and, and Ronnie Smith and, uh, and a good friend in Queensland Paul Edwards that were on the technical uh, committee of Football Coaches Australia we were sort of having a a chinwag every Monday or Tuesday afternoon and talking about, you know, what what were the things that we could do? What presenters could we get on and do webinars? And then I, I just said, you know what, we should maybe just talk to coaches about their journey. Because if you if you think of it, when do you hear from a football coach? You mm. hear from him when he gets a job, when he gets sacked from a job, before a game, after a game, and occasionally someone asks, asks their opinion about another game. So unless you're Ange and you've got your book, most people don't know the story of Australian coaches. And the remarkable thing is there is so much wisdom, whether you're a football coach or a bloody netball coach or an AFL coach, if you're in business, because these are people that are leaders. They lead men and women. They understand culture. They understand development. They understand pressure. They understand performance. Um, and... 
because I'm not in the mainstream media, it's just guys, it's a bit like me and these coaches sitting down for a beer or a glass of wine and just yeah. having a talk about football. So, Tonch, it's, it's just been an absolute blessing for me on a personal level uh, and I can't thank them all uh, enough for their honesty and transparency. You know, the way that they've opened up and told me some of the intimate details of their coaching journey has been quite remarkable and, um, and I'm certainly honoured to, um, to share their stories. And the, the last one you had was the great uh, Kenny Lowe, who, uh, uh, if you haven't listened to it, grab yourself half an hour, grab yourself right. a coffee, sit back and just listen. It was bloody fantastic. And um, I think it was a question you asked, and I did write it down. I've, I've lost my piece of paper, but it was a question you asked me about how did he become a coach? I think he said something along the lines of uh, get your badges, spend 20 years on a field and hope you don't get sacked. Something along those lines it was. And it, was it was just fantastic. Absolutely. And, and look, he, what, a, what a wonderful man. He had a, he had a fantastic playing career um, from all, all levels in, in England. Came to Australia in the 80s, believe it or not. Turned down a contract in Europe uh, and came to Western Australia to play for a year. Um, and then went back and got a degree in engineering. And he's a full-time bloody uh, engineer in the chemical industry and all that stuff as well. And then he just he coaches um, – um, uh, I can't remember the name. Went to Hope, isn't it? Um, he was the longest-serving uh, first-team coach at, um, at Perth Glory. So five years there. FC Jundalup, that's it. Jundalup, yeah. um, You know, he coaches, I think, the under-14s and the first team. He's director of football in his spare time which he reckons that's why his marriage has lasted so long. He's been married to his wife for 30 years, but because he's been out so often, he reckons they're still in the honeymoon period because they've only really been together for, for about five years. So, um, you know, it's just he's got a wonderful sense of humour. He obviously cares about people and the number of players that he's helped develop on their journey and, you know, they're still in contact speaks volumes for the man and his coaching journey. Final question, Gaz, before we go. We touched there on um, uh, Football Coaches Australia. For those that don't know uh, about Football Coaches Australia, can you uh, give a little bit of an insight into into that and uh, and how, how coaches can get involved in that? Because I'm part of that myself and I remember, I think through lockdown um, earlier on in the year, there was a, a 12-week course that we all had that was every Monday for an hour and a half and we had different coaches come on from around the country and talk to us about session plans and stuff like that. And it was really interesting. So can you just give us a quick uh, uh, insight into that for us? Yeah, sure, Craig. I'd love to. Look, it, the, the organisation's about three, maybe coming up to four years old now, and was set up by coaches for coaches. Initially, and still there's a... The, the, because it was initially set up for professional coaches, um, the, there's, there's more for professional coaches than there is for... For community coaches right now, albeit that's changing, we understand that that really, really needs to happen. So there, there's an opportunity for coaches to learn. In my earlier thing about licensing, I've said, you know, the the, the federations, the member federations um, do, do licensing courses, but there's not an awful lot of then ongoing education. You know, it, <laughs> pre-COVID, of course, um, we would have the annual coaching conference, but in and around that, there's not necessarily a lot of on-the-field coaching practical help. So, you know, that was one of the things that we really want to do was to help coaches grow and develop. There is um, 
a growing truckload of opportunity to do that. Um, a program that you mentioned before, Sports Session Planner, which is being used by um, thousands and thousands of coaches around the world. Australian coaches can now access that and, and plan their training sessions, share them with their with their players, with the teams at the club. The clubs can buy it. All the coaches can be on it. That That's a whiz-bang tool. Then we partnered with XVenture, um, which is... I'm going to call it the new age of, of education. It's online learning, but but this is state-of-the-art. It's virtual learning um, and helps coaches learn the soft skills of coaching, I'm going to say, as opposed to the, the hard skills of being out on the grass playing. There's representation. You know, we, we, we well, in the beginning days of the organisation, um, we represented Alan Stajic when he parted ways with Football Australia. Um, and on an ongoing and regular basis, um, Glenn Worry, who's our honorary CEO and does a remar- absolutely remarkable job. Um, what we do without him, I'm not quite sure. But we've got some legal people both here in Australia and in Asia where we can offer coaches advice. Um, at the moment, David Zrilich, who's a was former Socceroo and currently an assistant coach at Genoa in Italy, um, albeit he can't have a coaching contract because he's UEFA Pro, which is an Asian AFC uh, Pro licence, isn't recognised by UEFA. Um, and because he hasn't coached a, a national team for five years, um, he's finding it really difficult to get that contract um, verified, let's put it that way. So mm. we, we can help people like David. Um, we've got standard coaching contracts. So if you're a community coach, that you know wants to firm up your relationship with the club, even even if it's only you know half a dozen stubbies a week or wh- whatever you're getting. But there's there's a, a free um, uh, um, template contract you can use. So generally, by and large, that's it. It's a wonderful organisation. Then of course you know the online opportunities that, that we set up during COVID is still there, and. You know, I can't not give myself a plug. I, I think the Football Coaching Life podcast, which you can listen mm-hmm. to, and there's now a YouTube channel where you can watch it as well, is just a a wonderful opportunity for you to learn, whether you're driving around in your car or you're sitting in your lounge room with a, uh, a glass of wine at night. You can listen to some of the the best Australian coaches, male and female coaches, talk about their coaching journey and what they learned along the way. And if there's not some opportunity for any coach to learn a bit, I've, I, I'm a, a dinosaur coach uh, in my armchair, <laughs> but I've learned so much, it's, uh, it, it's not funny. Um, so um, footballcoachesoz.org.au, um, all of your podcasts, uh, all your favourite podcasts that will have the, the, um, the podcast, which is The Football Coaching Life by Football Coaches Australia. And if you go to YouTube and search for um, Football Coaches Australia, the podcast will come up there as well. So, yeah, awesome, great work by some great men and women. Mate, uh, thank you very much, Gaz, for joining us tonight on the Football Outwear Show. We've got the links there in the um, comments section to both the, um, the podcasts um, and obviously the Football Coaches Australia um, website itself. Mate, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show and we thank you very much for joining us on uh, on episode 86. Uh, Tonch, Steve and Craig, thanks for the invite, guys. Keep up the wonderful work you do promoting our beautiful game. Um, we need you. We need people out there talking about it so we can grow and develop and get better. Absolutely. Pleasure. Yeah, thanks Good so much, you, Gary. Thank you very Good much. Good on you, Gary. Good night. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Gary. Thanks, mate. All the best, mate.
And that was uh, Gary Cole. That was a great interview. That I tell you what, it was a really, really interesting interview. Um, lots of lots of um, um, pearls of wisdom there about the um, football situation at the moment, and indeed from a coach's point of view. Gents, that brings us to the end of our show. What a ripper it's been tonight. Um, Craig, enjoy the rest of your birthday tonight, and enjoy the uh, uh, Easter weekend next weekend. And Steve, I'll be uh, we'll be back tomorrow night with. Um, Adrian Leyer, former Melbourne Victory player, and Stephen Lushtitzer, the current superstar of Western United as special guests of the Geelong Region Soccer Show. Yeah, fantastic. Can't wait, mate, for your company in uh, less than 24 hours' time. Yeah, good night, folks, and good night to everyone out there. (laughs) Good night. Good good night, guys. (laughs) Bye-bye. 